I once studied in pursuit of a PhD that never happened with a remarkable professor who used to teach at the UCs as well as in Israel, whose name was Amos Funkenstein. And one of the things that was remarkable about him was that he was capable of being completely without anxiety about time. So he could be an hour late for your appointment. But when he was there, he was completely present. And you knew, if you were supposed to see Professor Funkenstein at 2 o'clock, that eventually he would show up. And you just had to wait near his office, but that the time you spent with him would make you forget about the fact that you had to wait for so long. And once he asked me if I would drive him to the airport. And I said, sure. And the flight, let's say, was at noon. And I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, like 11.30, he's ready to go. He jumps in the car. And I, of course, am sweating and nervous. He's fine. And as I'm driving him to the airport faster than I should, he starts to give me, because his expertise was not only in Jewish studies, but also he was a historian of science. He starts to tell me about the history of time in the Western tradition. And he said, you know, before I think it was the 15th or 16th century, no one could be five minutes late. Because until the invention of the counterpost clock, watches didn't count by minutes. So times were always approximate. I got him there in approximately the right time. And he made the plane, but I never forgot that thought that the idea that you could be a minute late was actually a later idea in human history. And it reminds us of how much of what we think of as boundaries or borders are in fact humanly created. This isn't 2016, except we say it is. What makes it 2016? Why does the new year start on January 1st? As you know, the Jewish tradition has four new years. We could have 10 new years. Each month, we could call it a new year. It's entirely up to us. Yes, there are natural cycles in the world. But the fact that we divide them up into Shabbat, into weeks, into months, into years, that's our doing. Yes, there are natural borders in the world, but the fact that we divide places up into cities, into countries, into continents, that's our doing. We make up these borders. They don't exist in the world, your property and my property. It's something that we agree upon. And a lot of law, as you know, including, by the way, a lot of Talmudic law, has to do with boundaries. What counts as your property and mine? What traverses it? What are you allowed to do in my property and in yours? If your property starts here and a tree, if a branch overgrows, what we think of as my property doesn't go all the way up into space. And you realize that these are humanly created categories. The same thing is true of not only the natural world and the way we divide it up, but the way we divide up our lives. When do you decide that a child is an adult? 
When does a baby become a toddler? When does a group become a people? When did Israel become a people? That's actually what I'm leading towards this morning. We think of Israel as a people, but when did they start being a people? After all, we're beginning the book of Shemot, and in Shemot they're clearly a people, but in Genesis they're a family. How big does a family have to get before we call them a people? At the end of Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his sons, nobody calls them the people Israel. They're Yaakov and his kids. And all of a sudden, we come to the book of Shemot, and they're in Egypt, and they're a people. Now, of course, I would not have proposed this question if I didn't have an answer. And I want to give credit. This answer is based on an, insult, an insight by Adin Steinsaltz. Rabbi Steinsaltz says he thinks that the Jewish people became a people in the following verse. Vayomer el amo, hine am b'nei Yisrael rav va'atsum mimenu. And Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelites are too numerous for us. But remember, he calls them B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Once he says they're too numerous for us, he identifies them as a separate people. And it may sound strange, but Rabbi Steinsaltz is suggesting that the definition of the Jewish people came not only from the outside, but from an enemy that they're the ones, Pharaoh in particular, who first made the Jewish people self-identified as a people. And then he goes on to say something that I found fascinating. He said, unless you feel part of a people, you're not really in exile. Let's explain what he means. When have the Jewish people felt in exile? When they felt part of the Jewish people. When they felt part of a different population from the population that is there. Somebody who feels, whether they're born Jewish or not, somebody who feels completely American and doesn't have any identification with Judaism, or someone who feels completely French and doesn't have any identification with Judaism, if you say to them, are you in exile, they'll say no. It's only when you have an identity as a Jew that you feel that a part of you is not home. That the eternal home of the Jewish people, even if you choose to live outside of it, is Israel, and so you are in exile, whether self-chosen exile, which we call the diaspora, or genuine exile, galut, in places where you wish you could leave, but you can't. And that, says Steinsaltz, is what originally constituted the Jewish people was the sense that they were not where they belonged and they couldn't be a people until they had a destination. In that sense, the idea of the land of Israel helped make the Jewish people a people. Because once they had a place where they did belong, then they could feel where they did not belong.
And so you knew, I might get along with my next door neighbor, I might be close to them, I might be friendly with them, but there is something different about me because I belong to a different people, not the same people. Now this is uncomfortable for American Jews to hear in some ways. But remember that throughout Jewish history, it was a practice for Jews to leave a corner of their house unpainted. It was, some of you may observe this practice without actually intending to, but you did that to remind yourself this wasn't fully your home. This was a way station, but ultimately we all belong in Eretz Israel. And that idea that the land makes a people just as the people make a land, that idea is what animated, what gave energy to the Zionist movement. Pinsker, one of the early Zionist theoreticians, said a people without a land is like a spirit without a body. It's like you're a ghost. You hover around from place to place, but you're not anchored anywhere because you're just a spirit. What I think maybe Pinsker and others didn't appreciate as much as we can is that once the Jewish people have a land, it gives even those in the diaspora a body. That is, we are anchored even outside of Israel because there is an Israel and our sense of Jewishness is deeper and fuller because Israel exists. This is something that I think everybody who remembers what the world was like before there was an Israel can appreciate especially keenly. But those of us who are fortunate enough to be born into a world in which Israel already exists, we just have to imagine it. And that's what made the people in Egypt a people. Once it became clear that their aim was to return to Eretz Israel, that they had a destination and they had a goal, then they could look at one another and say, oh, you're one of the people too who belongs there and not here. In fact, says Steinsaltz, imagine a Jew who lived in Egypt and was a slave but decided not to identify as a Jew. He said, you can imagine what such a person would think. He would think, you know what, I'm a slave now, but I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna get out of slavery. I'm gonna succeed because Egypt has upper mobility and I'm gonna become something in Egypt. He said, but no Jew thought that way because as long as you were a Jew, you were gonna be in a particular place and there was no leaving it. So it was that consciousness of difference and of destination that made the people a people. As this new year begins, even if it is arbitrary, it becomes real in our minds because it is a demarcation point, it is a difference, it is what the sociologists call a liminal moment, a transition from one thing to another. So in this new year, let's remember that part of being a people 
is a commitment to Eretz Yisrael, which helps shape us as a people, and a commitment to Am Yisrael, to one another, to identify as part of a people, even though at times that brings a measure of discomfort. Even though you realize that that carries with it sometimes the enmity of some in the world and responsibilities that it would be easier to be without. But from the moment that Pharaoh looked out the window of his palace and saw that we were different, we've been different. And that isn't only in our minds. That's in our conduct, in our history, and in our mission. May we be conscious of all of them and fulfill them even better in 2016 than we did in the year that passed. Shabbat Shalom.